really f I felt that the seasons are a pretty astounding metaphor for so many aspects of the human condition. And, and so I've always been drawn to them from that perspective. That's Graham James, I'm Jamie Green, and this is Training Force. Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of Trading Fours. I'm your host, Jamie Green, and today is episode 103. It's a cloudy, cold, dreary morning here in Kansas City as we kick off this episode, which is interesting because yesterday it was literally 85 degrees with the wind blowing about 40 miles per hour all day. I mean, it felt like July. I love this town, but no one, and I mean no one, lives here for the weather. Yes, we used to get four distinct seasons here, but I hate to say it, it feels more just like two these days, either hot or cold. Weather is something that we Midwesterners talk a lot about, but today's guest, Graham James, is using the seasons to talk more about the seasons of life. Graham is a native of New Zealand who now calls Amsterdam his home. He started out busking on the streets, which is a trial by fire for musicians, believe me. As he honed his craft, he became a multi-instrumentalist to the point where he played virtually every track on this new record. Graham is also a new father, so we had a lot to chat about. He zoomed in all the way from Amsterdam. So let's get started. Here's my conversation with Graham James. My first question actually for you, Graham, was because I'm always interested in people's background stuff. So what do Americans get wrong first about New Zealand? And what do Americans get wrong about uh, Amsterdam? Um, I don't really know. It's a great question. I wish I had an excellent answer. Um, I think uh, like it's a bit of a stereotype, but... Um, if people know anything about New Zealand at all, then they tend to actually know kind of quite a bit. And if they, if they don't know, then the level of ignorance is astounding. But I think people that are informed tend to know a little bit. But the, the majority of people would know about Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, that's probably the key kind of reference point. And that's a pretty good reference point as well, to be fair. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and I don't know, I don't really have a, I'm, even though I'm a Dutch citizen, I'm a bit of an outsider here in a sense, because I've kind of, uh, I've been, I did a lot of touring before Corona, uh, when we, when we moved to this part of the world, um, but touring the States, the UK, everywhere apart from the Netherlands. And then, um, during Corona, obviously we didn't do much at all. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. That that, uh, that sounds familiar. I put on yeah, thirty yeah. pounds. That's Graham. That was my thing. I was like, I'm just gonna just put on a ton of weight, stress yeah. heat for <laughs> almost two years, and now I'm desperately trying to take it off. And it's it's at 54. <laughs> it's not easy, my friend. It is uh, not easy I'm, to take it off. I'm uh, I'm currently uh, doing similar things, but with uh, like a keto diet, which has been reasonably effective, actually. Well, that's good. So did you get, so when you get to Amsterdam, do you like, do you, do you get a bike when you get off the plane? Is it just like, this is pretty part of your yeah. life now? That's a, pretty much exactly how it worked. We arrived 
um, you you go through uh, through customs. They're like, here's your bike, and yeah. then you hop on it, and you off you go. No, I we, need to get we, there. We we literally um, first thing we did was buy a bike. Um, well, that's great. I wish we could do more of that here. I yeah, you I know, mean, it's, it's just it's been set up so well. It's really um, it's really quite efficient and it's also the population here is uh the population density is through the roof so you've got cities that are quite close to close to each other and everything is kind of um designed with this pretty incredible dutch efficiency um, that's nice you really do come to appreciate over time yeah i i can't even imagine you know i grew up in uh Lincoln, Nebraska, which is, you know, you have to have a car for everything. I mean, the, 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 I think one of the dumbest things America's done is just made, instead of designing for people, mm-hmm. we designed for the car, which seems insane to me. But yeah. Anyway, we're here to talk music though, but I'm always kind of interested when people like, yeah, what's it like to be there and, you know, mm-hmm. and being there. But uh, so when you were, you were talking a little bit about what's it like in Kansas City. So your new record, which is coming out, Friday, we're yeah. we're almost there. Is yeah. seasons, and I, I read the background of the bio stuff, and I was thinking yesterday when I was freezing my butt off, uh, <laughs> trying to get a bike ride in. Back to my earlier thing about, and it was you know it's technically spring here, but in Kansas City, sometimes we get four seasons in a week. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's interesting. So talk a little bit about this construct, this concept of an album that talks about seasons and I, I i imagine not just seasons per se as weather mm. but seasons as in your life too yeah yeah well i think um yeah i really f- i felt that uh the seasons are a pretty astounding metaphor for so many aspects of um of the human condition um and and so i've always been drawn to them from that perspective like my songwriting style isn't very literal um some people can make that work and i think it's a real art form but i just find like um yeah i find that that style of songwriting to to be quite hard and quite not appealing so i tend to I'm, i'm always leaning in the direction of metaphor and simile um the songwriters that i really love tend to be ones that are uh, they paint with words and I think um, that the seasons in particular hold such strong visual references and um, yeah and then that kind of opens a whole uh, kind of color palette as a songwriter to play with um, so yeah I've, I've really enjoyed that but the the, the northern hemisphere, this kind of uh, latitude across the world, just has this really quite astounding seasonal pattern. Like, yeah, we were in uh, in Kansas, uh, in, in Missouri, in um, yeah, in autumn last time, and it's just it's very very cool. It's my by far my favorite time of year yeah. here. And it's just I, like we were staying out in the suburbs, and it's like you're walking around and there's always a deer in someone's yard and <laughs> just the it's, yeah so it's a really cool um thing but yeah it's the same kind of here in, in northern europe you get this kind of 
So much Very different from your childhood then, I'm guessing? Yeah, well, New Zealand is, is um, the, the native vegetation there is uh, like all evergreen. Okay. So that's beautiful in its own way, but you don't get the same sense of like um, death and rebirth that you kind of do with the, the deciduous trees in, the, in this part of the world. Um, and where I lived for a number of years in, in Wellington, uh, like it's just incredibly windy. So it's, like it's literally the windiest city in the world. And so like the, the seasons are kind of like strong wind and even stronger wind. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, so, so I've appreciated uh, very, very much um, living in this part of the world for a while. I bet. So you're one of the few people that I've interviewed who is playing all the tracks on a, on a tune on, on your album. Correct. Mm. For the most. So uh, I, I'm always fascinated by this. So uh, for instance, I had Jason Faulkner on. I'm mm. sure you know who Jason Faulkner yeah. is. And he, he talked about when he puts together the first thing he does, it's all about the drums for him that he sits down and that's how he, and then he builds out yep. from there. So for you, what you're in the studio you're starting to do this and i know you produce yourself too what's the first track that you lay down uh well it's well it was a, it was a slightly deceptive statement earlier there are a few co-collaborators on this particular album but my my starting point almost always is actually um some kind of percussion track um but to be honest, it would often just be a bad like MIDI drum track because um, I can't stand playing along to a click. No, me either. I just lose, I lose That's my terrible. mind. Yeah, it's awful. Um, so I'd just be like, just on logic and just be like, drag out some sort of drum strip. And like, it would be horrible. Um, <laughs> that's usually my starting point. And then uh, something with a bit of rhythmic quality. So it normally works from sort of rhythm guitar or ukulele or mandolin outwards to bass and then and various um and then the production choices really start kicking in um with you know cello accordion whatever it might be that i am not actually qualified to play but that i decide to do anyway um <laughs> so it's a multi it's those are multiple takes i'm taking and cutting and oh, pasting yeah, yeah. and put it so, yeah yeah uh not to put any for me that in the studio the end always justifies the means like i have no if i want a thing to happen i will make it happen um like there's some cello parts like that would be composed of about i know exactly what i want to do um but i don't have the like i'm a, i'm a, a father now so it's like my opportunities for like sitting down and spending 20 hours a week learning cello are like non-existent. So I'll be like, okay, this is what I want to play. And I, because I'm a violinist by trade, I'm like, I know I can do that, but it will take me <laughs> like 50 takes. Right. <laughs> and then stick a couple of them together. Like, boom, there we go. Um, so yeah, that's kind of just part of the process of me sitting in the studio and losing my mind slightly and just, coming up with all sorts of um yeah interesting textures and flavors and yeah 
there's a really famous quote that I'm going to butcher now because, you know, that's what I do. But uh, yeah, so Churchill, Churchill had said something about when he, writing a book, you know, because Churchill was brilliant and he wrote tons of books. And I just remember that toward the end of it, he said, you know, when you're just so sick of it mm. and it's basically almost killed you, mm. uh, that's when you're done with it and, you, and it's over. And I, yeah. from all the people I know who have recorded, I mean, I've recorded stuff, but it's just, you know, cover tracks and stuff, but especially that I, it's kind of the vibe I get that mm. and when you're finally really sick of it and you don't, you can't stand to hear it anymore. Yeah. That's when you're done. Is that accurate? Uh, it depends. Like I... I've been blessed to have like a lot of the time deadlines of various kinds. Um, and I find that having constraints is very, very useful for my art. Uh, if it was just like sit here and then you've got as long as you, as long as you want and as much money as you want, make something cool. That's like a recipe for like, um, I don't know artistic trauma <laughs> it's much better to have like okay this needs to be with the record label at this point in time and uh this is how long you've got in the studio go and do a thing because um, otherwise it's, it's like asking the question when is a painting finished right it's like um and for me it's almost always uh, a couple of days after the deadline <laughs> when i'm completely exhausted and i've run out of um yeah reasons to not to do things but i I find that yeah the the process of um of finishing things is is aided by having some sort of some sort of limitation yeah i think it's interesting uh because it's a trap you can fall into, right, Graham? There's so it's so many bells and whistles, and there's so many effects. There's so much stuff that you can do. Uh, you can get lost in that. You can really the forest through the trees kind of thing, correct? Big time. Because I'm always like, I tell people because I have friends that are like, I'm still working on this track, and I'd be like, God, you've been working on that track for like a year. You know, the Beatles did their first album in one day, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why John's yeah. voice is so roached at uh, Twist and Shout. He just, he's been singing for nine, 10 hours at that point. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of, um, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I there's a lot of value in doing. Just do. Um, so many people, if you just, if you can just somehow disconnect your ego from the whole process and just do. Uh, really allows you to, um, yeah, to to make art. Um, it's the there's an old saying. It's the um, that the person who identifies as a composer will never release their first symphony because if it's if people don't like it, then their whole identity will crumble and that's like that's too much pressure yeah so i just like to make and to the best of my ability within the time frame that is available uh with, with the resources that are available and then just go make something else yeah so you talked briefly about becoming a father and how mm. uh 
it's changed your life as far as you, you can't practice. You know, I think it's for me. So I have two boys. They're yeah. almost completely grown now. One's 20 and one's 17. But I think it's one of the best things for your ego to figure mm. out that this is because even when you fall in love with somebody, I mean, it's yeah. doing you're doing it because it's making you feel good and you you know you love them and it's a it's a great thing. But children, it's like you put yourself second for them, totally the whole time. So does that also make you rethink your whole life and like as a musician and stuff? It's like it's not just solely about me does that enter your mind at all is now as a father as you're recording as opposed to before you had kids uh i think it does i think it it, it um it makes me think about things like obviously coming out of a pandemic as an indie musician um yeah you, you start to think about the uh, the commercial viability of various options and i think there's a, there's a helpful clarity to these kind of things that, you know, comes in this kind of more real world talk than artistic talk. But um, yeah, it, uh, as an indie musician, you're always having to figure out like putting on your business hat. And I think having a family really does actually cut a lot of the, uh, a lot of the crap when it comes to actually, yeah, allowing you to focus in and, and, and come up with some, ideas that are um less <laughs> uh what's the right word yeah it just it just provides some clarity i think you know cool this person is reliant on me for everything yeah and um it makes you realize wow oh, okay so i this is not just about touring relentlessly although that sort of thing is helpful for other aspects of provision but yeah, you know, you just you go, okay, this uh it's important that I'm actually present as a human. And um so I think it's increasingly starting to uh yeah, just give me a healthier perspective on on things. Yeah. And nobody thinks what I have as well. Yeah, it, it's great for your ego because when they get to be mm. teenagers, Graham, nobody thinks yeah. you're less cool than your kids. uh they just but that's good right because they yeah yeah, yeah. they know who you really are so uh, i'm curious since you you talked about the lockdown and covid stuff Mm. so my kids were pretty much grown they just went to watch netflix or my younger son plays video games or whatever so with a young how hard was it for you guys with a young kid Mm, well she was born literally two weeks before first lockdown started Um, wow so we were already planning for a season of change um but we weren't quite aware of how uh how full-on that would be so my um my recording uh, like i don't i actually planned to to slow down and record for uh, a while um or already before the pandemic turned up so I thought this is actually a good opportunity to be to be present for like the first year of um, of Eva's existence and just really be there to support my wife and and all those kind of things. So um, we were already expecting a much slower year than than previous ones, but um, yeah, it's definitely definitely an interesting time to be a parent. Um, I mean, like our, our 
our suffering was objectively uh, pretty minor compared to some people's, but um, yeah, like our, uh, Eva didn't meet her grandparents until she was 14 months old. Um, so you really, yeah, we kind of left to figure things out as we went, which was good and bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So where are the grandparents? Are they close or did you have to go halfway around the world with a baby? Yeah, yeah literally, yeah. So we went back to New Zealand when she was 14 months old. Wow. And we had to spend two weeks in a quarantine hotel, which is literally a single room. Oof. Um, and then like uh, three times a day, you get a knock on the door and there's some paper bags with uh, food. <laughs> it was a wild experience just in a single room yeah. for two weeks. It's uh, something I don't think any of us could have even imagined. No, no. So, so when you are going to write now, does, is some of that going to, you know, this is another profound thing about humanity and stuff. Is that going to leak into your songwriting, you think, going forward? Or you just want to ignore it, pretend like it didn't happen? I think, I mean, every experience will flavor my songwriting. But I tend to, uh, because I tend to oper operate more in... Um, Yeah, the, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's a, it sounds really pretentious, but I, I try to operate sort of more on a timeless kind of level. Um, I really love it when artists can like capture a moment that's not really my kind of vibe in particular. Um, like there's some incredible folk artists who are actual storytellers in the literal sense, like, you know, here's the story of the hurricane kind of, yeah. and all it's like 28 verses with harmonica solos and all those kind of things. Um, for me, um, I'm more, uh, yeah, conceptual. So I think it, it will, these things do bleed through into the songs, but not in the like, I'm sick of wearing a mask, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, nobody wants to listen to that song. <laughs> well, you know, I, I had John McCutcheon on, and, and John is one of those people, you know, he reads about the truce in the First World War, and he writes this great song all about yeah. it that's kind of like a history lesson without, yeah, you know, yeah. what I like, and that's a really, that's a, that's a very specific uh, ability to do that. Because mm -hmm. I don't, you know, right? Yeah, it's a bold thing to do as well. I, I wrote like one song like that for this particular album um, about a, um, a pretty wild survival story in Antarctica. And that was like one of the most difficult experiences as a songwriter. Um, you know, because if I'm writing a song about how I feel, cool that's no one's gonna be like no you didn't you didn't feel like that <laughs> right <laughs> it's, it's like it's inarguable um but here i was trying to like sum up what is probably like literally one of the greatest survival stories of all time in like three verses is this shackleton who is this yeah yeah shackleton yeah um that's an amazing story for people that don't ridiculous. know it no they should have yeah, all died like, what's it sorry I said they should have all died. And the they fact that nobody died. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 
the dogs died. But, well, but. It, it didn't go well for the dogs early on, but the, it's either the, the dogs or the people. I love my dog too, but if exactly. I'm on an ice flow for two years, oh, yeah, there's, there's it's going to get real. <laughs> it got real for some seals as well, but that's another story. But yeah, the um, that was wild because it's like, well, this is actually not my thing like i'm having to try and attempt to document this in some kind of way um and i'm writing from someone else's perspective and that felt like such a challenge i bet it's one that i want to embrace more uh like i've written from other people's perspectives before but not like here's a story about shackleton (laughs) where it's like, this might, this might be like, hey, here's a story about my friend, but I might not even tell them that it's actually about them. Right. Uh, but this is like, <laughs> I literally called it The Voyage of the James Kidd, which was also like, I could have called it, I'm having a hard time at sea. And it would have been like, I don't, I have, to, I don't have to stress at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. They just found the, the ship too. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. It's wild, and it's basically immaculate. Yeah, because apparently the water's so cold that all the yeah. stuff that usually eats ship away aren't yeah. there. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by that. I know this isn't music, but that kind of stuff fascinates me. How people mm. can find, you know, Bob Ballard. He finds not only the Titanic, he finds mm. tons of these ships. And I mean, you talk about a needle in a haystack. Mm. But I'm not writing a song about it. I'm just not. A I, one. Maybe we'll try it. I'll see how it works. So you started out busking, correct? So how is that? I've always been really impressed by people who can do that because uh, I think when you're hired in a club or you're hired for a private event or you're hired for that, there's at least like people are like, okay, they're part of the show and stuff. Are most people, most people nice to you? Do you have weirdos that come up and ask you like strange requests? Like what, what is it like to be a busker? I would say that in general, it's the the struggle isn't uh, against and isn't with antagonistic people. It's the struggle against indifference, um, and that's fair enough because if you're if you're on the way to Target to buy some underpants, like the fact that someone's playing a guitar on the sidewalk is irrelevant. And that's, um, so I think a, a lot of people who start out as, as buskers end up being reasonably good performers or they stop. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I feel like it, it was, it was school. It was an apprenticeship that kind of taught me how to, uh, to get to gather an audience, how to keep an audience. Um, and yeah. So is it the pattern? I mean, obviously you have to sing well and play well, yeah, yeah, yeah. but is it also the pattern? Did you have like a little shtick in between songs that like people are like, oh, that guy's amusing or is it just purely the music? What's, what was your, what was your hook to get people to, to pay attention besides the quality of what you were doing? I think there was a couple of things. One of the one of the the main things initially was that I was playing. Uh, I wasn't just playing a guitar because that's 
no one's like, oh my goodness, I saw someone playing the guitar today. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not a story. Um, so I was playing violin and that just based on the, the relative rarity of things helps. Um, I was also a reasonably early adopter when it came to loop, looping and figured out ways of dragging my setup set onto the street. And uh, this is kind of circa 2012. So like people were just like, what is this magic? Um, that really helped. Um, it fills it out. Yeah, it fills yeah. it out, but it was also, I was introducing people to things that they hadn't seen before. Um, so, you know, I would just stop and sit down and go, wow, this is really cool. And I think one of the things that makes live performance wonderful in certain circumstances is the, the feeling like, like as an audience member that your presence might just change the outcome of the show in some way. And that's that feeling of togetherness that can be really wonderful. And um, with busking, you've got an opportunity to interact with people in a very free and fun way. So I'd borrow some keys from someone and loop those into a thing. And then, you know, someone would yell something out and maybe it would get caught in the, in the, through the microphone. Like, and so just, there's this kind of dynamic feeling of like, we're doing a thing together. Um, and yeah, that's the sort of thing that like, it only scales to a certain degree by the time you're if you're playing if you're playing Wembley or something like that you, you can't just be like has anyone got some keys like, <laughs> um well, yeah but it like you said though it's like your school though you're you're mm -hmm. learning how to interact with the crowd you're learning I mean talk about improvising Graham I mean yeah, yeah. literally yeah yeah things happen and that you just have to go I mean there's probably a lot of the you know patting your tummy and patting your head at the same time kind of aspect of it too. That's, it's crazy. I, yeah. I think the, um, it was really, it also helped me build a fan base because you have these kind of authentic experiences with people. Um, maybe you're playing on the street at like 1am in the morning and like, dude, I just so many ridiculous moments that like just completely non replicatable. You're going out and it, you think, oh, I wonder what strange thing will happen tonight. And yeah, one a.m. That's a good time for that. People yeah, leaving yeah. the bars and exactly, and and you end up with like, yeah. oh, okay, we've got a full-on street party going on here now, and and um, or yeah, just you have, end up having jams with people. Um, yeah, so the the I I learned to be, how to be a frontman as well because I was I was a one-man band right from the get-go, but I was an awful frontman for my one-man band. How I so? Just didn't really know how to, um, how to communicate and how to talk in between songs. And so I got all of that out of my system, kind of your 10,000 hours kind of thing, pretty early on. Um, so That's it's a, a very... Sorry. I'm just gonna. I was so this has never come up. So your episode 103, 
this is really interesting to me because one of the things that I think that, and I'm going to use a really off the wall example, but I swear I'll bring it back. So for instance, there's a band right now that is a tribute band to Van Halen uh, called Nerd Halen, which, so the whole thing is they've nerdy, but they're really good musicians, but their lead singer is a professional comedian, Hal Sparks, who's been on a bunch of TV shows and stuff. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I know the guitar player a little bit. I was like, that's brilliant. Like you've got like to have a comedian be your front man. So good. Where he's so quick. Yeah. I mean, just just amazingly quick. So he can kind of, like you said, this interactive part where he can Mm -hmm. play off of what the crowd said or do his stuff. Because that is a special skill set. There's there's people who are either they're terrified of being on stage. Mm -hmm. They don't have a personality uh it's it's so these great front people these people that connect with the crowd and stuff and make you feel like you're part of the show like you were saying earlier not just with keys just with the fact that they hear you and what you're doing so that's kind of fascinates me so how long did it take you to feel like okay i've kind of got it now i know how to be a front person um well i i eventually moved off the street (laughs) like i i uh like I started as a busker and I was actually, I started off actually traveling. I wasn't allowed to busk in the town that I was living in because they didn't allow amplification and um, unamplified looping sounds remarkably like silence. So, um, <laughs> That's the next album title. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so I was traveling uh, down to the town to Wellington, which is the capital city. And uh kind of sleeping in my car and playing on the street and things and then eventually I moved there um, and then I thought I'm going to go on tour so I just literally went to other cities and played on the streets and I did this for it worked incredibly well during kind of summer and then it got to winter I was down in the south uh, which being southern hemisphere is where it gets colder uh, in a place called Queenstown and I've I'd figured out how to perform in that context. I had like little hand warming pads in my gloves so that my fingers wouldn't be, uh, uh, so I wouldn't cut off the, the blood supply to my fingers. So like, I'm sorted, big coats on, all that sort of stuff. But I couldn't get people to stop because it was just mm-hmm. actually too cold. So I was yeah. like, ah, oh, they're, like, like they're, they're stopping for like a minute and enjoying it. But then they're like, okay, let's go somewhere warm. So I, I had a bit of a problem because I needed to make some money. And so I started asking around the bars and things like that. Can I, can I uh, play? Can I do my thing inside? And yeah, so then I ended up playing this kind of um, bars and clubs and things in this kind of resort town in, uh, in New Zealand. And um, it's the kind of like the only place in New Zealand like it where like a Monday night can be a, an absolute rager and, uh, and as much as a Saturday night, because it's just international tourists always turning up. So I got to take my performance chops indoors and start playing basically dance parties. And that kind of, that sense of improvisation just got even more. And I was playing a lot of cover songs, but just like just doing ridiculous things like playing Kylie Minogue in an Eastern European folk style and getting people to chant along like the whole thing was just absurd on on multiple levels and really fun um and in that context i learned a lot about 
crowd control if that makes sense um absolutely so just be like like there's moments where like i just tell everybody in the in the place to sit down on the floor and they would do it and then that would get to like this moment in the song where like everyone knew that they were just going to jump up and then like just have this kind of ridiculous moment like like um I think it was even in the context of like playing like some really wild improvised Lord of the Rings based theme song and like like this like really kind of the climactic moment of the movie and this the people are like I don't want to sit down but everyone else around them is like sit down <laughs> in these kind of moments where you're like if you do things with confidence and tell people they'll, they'll go yeah we we trust you with this this looks like it's going to be fun. But if you stand there and go, ah, no, totally. Hey, um, uh, I, uh, uh. it's an instant so, tune out. They tune out instantly. Yeah, you got. If you can't command the room, it's over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have to have that sense of authority as a you're you're leading a situation, which is kind of weird. But the the main the main rule in music, and especially in live music, is don't make it awkward. So if people get a sense that, that you are there to help facilitate them having having a good time, and then they'll they'll let you take them on a journey, and and it will be one that you participate in as well. So yeah, I think by the time I got through that kind of season and I started to release original music, I was pretty dis pretty decent frontman. That's great. And how much did we miss that? Those crazy interactions with people on live music. Yeah. I mean, it's, it feeds the soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really does. Even, even just like longing for someone to heckle from the back of the bar, like those kind of moments that are just like hilariously. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, I, I, I really appreciate the time. Uh, I really dug you know, the tracks that were sent to me. Um, and so one of the things I'm doing as I start year three of this podcast, which is crazy. I always try to think of what's a theme question I want to do. And so mm. I would have people like pick like some of their, and people are like, I can't pick a favorite song. Cause it's like picking my child, like a favorite child. So, so I, I abandoned that pretty early on. Cause I was like, um, but I'm curious. So I'm a big vinyl nerd. Mm. I have all my, fa my father was a jazz musician. I have all my dad's jazz albums, which is really cool. You know, the original verb stuff. And then I always kept mine and never. So Graham, what, is a vinyl album mm. that I should have in my collection that I probably don't have. What would be one of those ones you like, you know, Jamie, you really need to add this. There's got to be an album that you love that most people haven't heard of. What is it? Well, it's interesting because vinyl has a connotation of uh, like vintageness and a particular time period. Um, and like, I, I don't know how, like, I didn't have a lot of music actually randomly growing up. Um, like, there's we just kind of standard amounts of music, but it wasn't like my parents were like into like super cool kind of things. Like my, my, so I wish there was like a, oh, from 1973, it's this, like, but my early references were like kind of like you too. Um, and, uh, and David Gray, 
and uh, like a bunch of world music that was like very kind of kitsch and obscure, but like not cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm just, I, I think uh, like it's a pretty random thing to say because it's not really even remotely my genre. But I'd say one of the best album experiences of all time, and you, you might have it, is actually The Joshua Tree by, by U2. I do uh, not have it, but I have a very funny Joshua Tree uh, story. Yeah, go on. So I, like every musician, I worked in a record yeah. store in college, yeah. right? Because it was like, hey, I get to listen to music all day. Exactly. And I used to work with these two brothers. I wish mm. I remember their names. Yeah, yeah. They were the biggest U2 fans on yeah. the planet. And I used to open with this one guy. And every time, every day, we had to start with Unforgettable Fire. He would not delineate from this. He would not change it every single day. And I, it's a really good album, but I'm guessing Graham probably because he was shoving it down my throat every day for, uh, I never owned it because I felt like, oh, I've heard that a thousand times. But now that it's been so many years, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to like, and when we get off, I'm gonna have to put it on and listen to it. Maybe I will add it to it. It was so. What uh, what did you like about it? It'll be a nostalgia trip for sure. Oh, I bet. Sorry, what was the what was the... so what do you love about that album? Um I think yeah, like I think uh I'm not I wouldn't say I'm like the world's biggest YouTube fan, but I think the the songwriting style is such a visual one. So like, I knew what every song looked like. Um to the point where like I was like borderline offended when I actually came across the music videos. And they didn't look like what I'd what I'd seen through the through the lyrics, and so for me that that was a um, yeah quite a an eye opening thing to think that someone could create something in one sense like in, in the like for the ears, but that it would somehow affect the eyes and. I think that was that was really really cool. Yeah, music has color. It does. People don't really think about it, but it does. Yeah, 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 totally. I, I mean, they probably hated the videos too. I'm guessing because <laughs> most of those videos were <laughs> just terrible. Somewhere it was just like, cool, we're gonna do this. Yeah. yeah, you get some young director who's got some strange vision that the band's <laughs> like, what? This is the thing. Like, okay, I guess we'll do it, and they just great. <laughs> I mean, I, I saw Daryl Hall once at the Hall and Oates, and he's like, I hated every video I was in. It was terrible. I just felt like an idiot, and I didn't want to be there. But the record company said we had to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally. Well, it's really nice to meet you. I hope you make mm. it back to Kansas City. Yeah, me too. I and, actually left an amp in Kansas City. And I sent a number of emails being like, can I have it back, please? And like, yeah, sure. Well, that sucks, man. Well... I, it's probably still sitting at the back of the bar, but I just never heard back. So I'm going to come back and get my amp. Well, if you want, I could pick it up for you and, and hold it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks so much, James. All right. Have a good day. Appreciate it, man. Okay, bye bye. See the black cliffs of South Georgia again. Yet here we are. Graham James, everybody. Very cool to talk to Graham and. Yeah, Graham, call me. We'll pick your amp up. If it's there, be happy to hold it. All right, down in the show notes, as you know, you have homework. There are links for Graham James. Please follow him and see what he's up to. It was a lot of fun. 
that is going to do it for today's episode. But hey, we're coming back to Kansas City. You know, I'm trying hard to keep Kansas City on the radar of this podcast because it's really what delineates me from a lot of other schmoes. Uh, This is a great music town. And next week, one week from today, I have Nikki White. Nikki is an amazing singer and songwriter who just dropped a bomb on some of her history on me. I had no idea. So it turned into a, a very interesting conversation. And then second, uh, Tyson Leslie, he moved back here, and he's got to, he's going to dial in for a quick update. He's got a really cool event coming up uh, down at Knuckleheads, and uh, you guys are going to dig it. You should go and 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 see it. So that's going to do it for this time. So you know what I'm going to say? I mean it. Go out, support live music. We'll talk real soon. Oh, my God.